Good morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad that you're here. Uh, I don't know where you're logging in, uh, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's on Facebook, whether it's here in Warsaw or around the world. But regardless, uh, I want you to know we're grateful that you're joining us. Uh, did you notice my shirt, by the way? Hope you can see it clearly. Uh, this is a shirt my wife actually got me for Christmas that I have been saving for the first nice Sunday of spring. And unfortunately, we never ended winter until this week, and we skipped spring and went straight to summer. So I just thought I'm going to wear it anyway. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Um, as I was thinking about today's message, I was reminded of a couple of things. First of all, Monopoly came out with a game some time back entitled Monopoly, The Cheater's Edition. And this is what it states. These are their words now. Follow, bend, or break the rules to win the cheater's edition of the Monopoly board game. Cheating is part of the game. I want you to think about that. Who was the game created for? Primarily, of course, children. And so here we are as a culture teaching our children that the way to win is to cheat, to steal or lie as long as we don't get caught. Uh, Milton Bradley also developed a game called Mall Madness. It's a game like Monopoly. It's a board game. But the description says this. Will you be the first to lose your money? You are let loose in a shopping mall with $200. Go to it and spend it all. Empty your pockets first and you will win the game. When you've spent every cent, your marker moves triumphantly into the winner's space labeled broke and you win. The way to win is to be broke? A survey of female teenagers discovered that 93% of female teenagers said that their number one favorite pastime was shopping, even over dating. I heard about a husband who said that if his wife doesn't go shopping three times a week, he sends her a get well card. Today, we're drawing to a close. We're wrapping up our series entitled Relationships 101, The Ten Commandments. And the tenth commandment, very simply, is you shall not covet. And in our culture, we don't have to wait for Christmas for all of the ads to apprise us of everything that we desperately need that is keeping us from being happy. It happens every day, all year long, whether through TV ads or through the internet or even through billboards. I've joked with my wife several times that it seems like all I have to do is mention something out loud and the next thing I do is I look at my phone and they're giving me an ad for it. The commandment, you shall not covet. But what is coveting exactly? Coveting is defined as the yearning to possess, the wanting and need to have. 
The desire for things, liking things, appreciating things, isn't wrong in itself. It's when you add that little word, need. The need to have. So what I want to do this morning is look at the fact that in our culture, it's hard for us from the youngest age on not to have cultivated within our soul a sense of needing to have. The acquisition and the hoarding of things. But that very mindset has an impact upon us, upon our souls, and yes, even upon our minds and our bodies. And I want to look very briefly at what are some of the effects of this need to have, this yearning, this coveting that is cultivated in us. First of all, uh, a sense of fatigue. In our drive to get more, we overwork. Even taking on second jobs. Everybody in the family works. And in most cases, it's not working in order to pay the essentials like your mortgage or your rent, your utilities, or even food. It's for those extra, for our toys that we desperately want and need. So we'll go work extra job away from our families and certainly not taking any sense of rest in our own souls. It's a material rat race. Proverbs 23.4 says, Do not wear yourself out to be rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Honestly, when I often ask people how they're doing, it's not uncommon for the res response first to be, I'm tired. Just fatigue sets in in this drive to get more. And then the second result is debt. Ecclesiastes 5.11 says, the more money you have, the more money you spend. This need to have more, coveting, destroys budgets all over the place. I can remember on one occasion meeting with a young couple that was having trouble with their finances. And we sat down with them and worked out a budget with them that we felt was fair, they felt was fair. Uh, actually, they did it, but brought it to us. And things were going along really well. And then we missed our next couple of meetings for various reasons. And then finally, we just decided, I guess they're doing well and they don't need us, which is fine. That's the hope of every counselor. But then they asked to meet with us quite some time later. I think it might have been like a year later. And their response was they were more in debt then than they were when they first met with us. This desperate need to have more causes us to spend more and end up in greater debt. The bigger truth isn't that we need more, it's that we want more. Many of the things that we consider needs are really greeds. The average American has a running credit card debt of $5,700. Think about it. $5,700 at any given point on your credit card. The average American, for every $1,000 they make, have $1,300 in debt on their credit card. Now that's called deficit spending. And you can't get away with that for long unless maybe you're the government. And even they can't, really. We want more, and we get further and further into debt. Number three, worry. 
Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, A working man can get a good night's sleep, but the rich man has so much that he stays awake worrying. First we worry about how do we get what we want, then we worry about how do we keep what we want, how do we protect what we want, how am I going to invest it, how am I going to insure it? It just We're worrying about it. And then when you add those three together, fatigue, dead, and worry, you end up with the fourth, which is conflict. We fight over the fact that I think I need it and you won't let me have it. James 4.1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle within you? The number one stated cause, now I think there's deeper causes, but the number one stated cause for divorce has to do with financial problems. Struggles within the family financially. When you have what I want, or you won't let me have what I want, that creates conflicts, battles, and fights. I mean, how many fights occur at home because one spouse spends money the other one doesn't think needs to be, or vice versa? It just, it, all of this adds up, which leads me to the final result of this desperate yearning and need to have, which is dissatisfaction. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, You will never be satisfied if you long to be rich. You will never get all you want. The Living Bible says, It's foolish to think wealth brings happiness. It's the old adage that says, How much is enough? And the answer is, A little more than what I have. We can't lie to ourselves. If we think stuff is going to bring us happiness, we will soon learn that the thrill of the new stuff quickly wears off. When you get something from Amazon or Kohl's or Pennies and you open it and you're so excited and it's, it's just new and it smells new, maybe it's that new car. Everything seems great. But pretty soon, the thrill wears off and you realize it's just a hunk of plastic and metal sitting on four tires. That's all it is. The thrill soon wears off. That's why we have a thing called fashion or style. It's because we realize, and I want you to try to get this concept, people change, but things don't change. So that which used to satisfy you, that which used to thrill you, doesn't as much anymore. Because people change while your stuff remains the same. I can remember as a kid getting a minibike as a birthday gift, which was a big deal. And this wasn't just a, a, a homemade minibike. This was a Honda minibike. And I was thrilled with it. And I would ride it all over our fields and then I can remember hitting a woodchuck hole and taking a, a dive and the steering wheel on it, the, the handlebars had been all bent up and pretty soon the gas tank had a dent and then other, after a while that mini bike just didn't give the same thrill and I needed something more. And it's the same with all of us. How many of you can remember that really special Christmas gift that you got this past Christmas just Five months ago. How many of you can even remember any Christmas gift you got? Now, I remember this shirt. 
because I've been holding it in escrow in my closet waiting for the perfect spring day. But honestly, I don't remember what I got. And I doubt you really do. Because pretty quickly, that what you got, you use, you appreciate, but then you just kind of make it a part of your normal ensemble. So, what's the antidote to coveting? I think it's contentment. Paul says this in Philippians 4.11, I've learned the secret of being content, whether living in plenty or in want. And the key word, by the way, in the verse is learned. I've learned, learned. It, in other words, it doesn't come naturally. I am not naturally a contented person. And neither are you. It's something we have to learn to be content. So, how do we learn contentment? How does that get worked into the fiber of our being? Let me just give you a couple of things that I felt. Number one, we have to resist the comparison game. Comparison always makes us feel like we're losing out and we need more. 2 Corinthians 10.12 says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. If you're comparing yourself, what you have or what you don't have, houses, cars, jobs, looks, clothing, giftings, anointings. If you're in the comparison game, the Bible says you are not wise. How do you react when you see somebody who has a nicer, newer car than you do? Can you just be grateful and thrilled that they have a nice car? Or is there something in you that says, man, I wish I had a car like that. I wish I had something new like they do. How come they can get it and I don't? I work as hard as they do. Or maybe for you, it's a newer and bigger house. It's funny to me how many times over the years I've watched even couples or families in our church buy a house because they needed a bigger house for their family and they no sooner get it than a short time later they're talking about having to now get a bigger house or a nicer house or they have to redecorate or rearrange constantly. It's like we're never satisfied. We compare in our society as a way of almost keeping track. It's a way of finding out how we're doing compared to other people. As if somehow my net worth and my self-worth are the same thing. 1 Timothy 6.9 says this, when we long to be rich, we are prey to temptation. We get trapped into all sorts of foolish and dangerous ambitions which will eventually plunge us into ruin. You see, it's possible that you can be possessed by your possessions. Instead of owning stuff and using stuff, it owns you. Did you hear about the lady who won the $17 million lottery? She called home immediately to her live-in boyfriend and says, I've just won the lottery. Pack your bags. And her live-in boyfriend said, Wow, great! Warm weather or cold weather? She said, I don't know. I don't care. I just want you gone when I get home. You see, this need to have and to measure ourselves by it causes us to lose so much, even relationships that we thought we valued. 
The second thing to learn contentment is rejoice in what you already have. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, If God gives a man wealth and property, he should be grateful and enjoy what he has. It's a gift from God. Now take a moment and think about it. In fact, just look around. Have you learned to be grateful for what you already have? Without this driving need to have more and bigger and better and newer, just be grateful for what you have. And if we learn that God actually gave us all of the good things that we have and we're grateful to Him for it, that'll stop all of the gimmies and gottas that we feel so desperately in our soul sometimes. We so easily fall into the trap called when and then thinking. When I can finally get this, then I will finally be happy. And you fill in the blank. The truth is, you'll only be happy for a little while because stuff doesn't last. The stuff you have is ultimately going to rot or rust or die. Ultimately, stuff will never satisfy. Only God can. And are you grateful for what God in His goodness gives you? There's always going to be something out there that's newer, better, and bigger, or maybe smaller. I mean, think about your cell phone. You no sooner get it than there's a new model out. And you were perfectly fine with the phone you had until your friend showed you the brand new phone they just got. And all of a sudden, what you have isn't good enough. Uh, I was thinking just this week about the fact that the phone that I have actually costs more than the first car I bought. And yet we convince ourselves, and I've done it too, that we have to have that latest and greatest phone. And if somebody comes around with their flip phone, we're like, What century are you living in? This drive to have more. When I get married, then I'll finally be happy. When I get out of this marriage, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, then I'll be happy. When my kids finally leave the house and get married, then I'll be happy. What are you waiting on that will finally make you happy? And I want to suggest to you, you are as happy as you want to be. It's your choice. Happiness isn't getting what you want. It's enjoying what you have. True happiness is being content with God's goodness towards you no matter what you have or you don't have. 1 Timothy 6-7 says, God has richly provided us with everything for our enjoyment. God wants you to enjoy what He's given to you. I've discovered there are two ways to have enough in life. Get more or want less. Have you learned the secret of contentment? It's whether in much or in little. It's just to be grateful to God. Number three, release what you have to help others. God didn't just bless you for your own benefit. God blessed you so that you could be a blessing to others. 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 17 through 19 says this, Tell those who are rich 
not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone. But their pride and trust should be in the living God who always richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Let me give that again. Our pride and trust should be in the living God who always richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and should give happily to those in need, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. By doing this, they will be storing up real treasures for themselves in heaven. It is the only safe investment for eternity, and they will be living a fruitful Christian life down here as well. A friend of ours, John Shiver, used to say this all the time, and it's just something that stuck in my soul. He said this, God will get money to you when he knows he can get money through you. Let me say it again. God will get money to you when he knows he can get money through you. I have found that you can be poor and greedy in the same way that you can be rich and greedy. You can be poor and content in the same way that you can be rich and content. Are you using what God has given you to bless others? These verses that I read tells us what our attitude should be. He says, number one, don't be proud of your wealth. Never forget, it came as a gift from God. I know we tend to think, I earned this. I worked hard for this. I know that. But the very breath you have and the ability you have to go to work is because God gave it to you. Secondly, This scripture tells us, don't put your trust in money. Bank accounts, investments can be lost overnight. Just look at what happened during this pandemic scare. Look what happened to so many people's investments in the stock market. Your security needs to be in God and not in anything that can be lost. And the third thing it tells us is, don't hoard or waste your money. Instead, invest it for the kingdom of God. And then fourthly, it says, give cheerfully. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. Giving is the cure for the cancer of greed and materialism. Every time we give, whether to a friend or to a need or even to our tithe, we break the back of greed that wants to rise up in our own lives. Acts 20.35 says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, my final point today on how to learn contentment is refocus on what's going to last. Why not take some time during this quarantine to actually reevaluate what are your priorities in life? What is number one in your life? Where are you putting all your time and your effort? Where are you spending your money? If we were to take your checkbook or your bank statement, what would it tell us about what you value? 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, We fix our attention not on the things that are seen, but on things that are unseen. What can be seen lasts only for a time, but what cannot be seen lasts forever. Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And then Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, 
Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Where is your focus? Not, not just right this second as you're listening to me. Where's your focus in life? When you awaken in the morning, is your heart turned towards the Lord? Throughout the day, are you aware of His presence? And what about when you lay your head on your pillow at night? Is Jesus the center of it all? Everything you see in this life will decay or rust. It'll wear out. It'll fall apart. Only what's done for Christ will really last. Materialism tends to warp our perspective of God, of others, and even of ourselves. Jesus told a story about this. He told a story about this rich man. He was an entrepreneur who had all kinds of investments, even so much so that he had to build big storage areas for it. And then he ran out of space. And so he said to himself, I'm doing so well for myself, I'm going to build bigger storehouses, bigger factories. He never gave one thought about sharing it with others. He never gave one thought about thanking God for it. And God says to him, you're a fool. Remember, a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's just me and my stuff. God says, you fool. Tonight, you're going to die. And then what good will all of this stuff be to you? I'm at a point in life where I have thought about retirement. And all of a sudden you realize everything that you've acquired over the years, what are you going to do with it? Because one day you're going to die and your kids are going to have to fight over it or they're going to have to struggle with how do we get rid of it? Are you living for what's really going to last? Luke 12.15 says, A man's true life is not made up of the things he owns, no matter how rich he may be. Our culture says if you have little, you're worth little. You see somebody begging on the street and we tend to walk by them and we won't even look at them because we measure worth by how much you have, how nice you look, how much you make. The truth is, we're not worth little. The blood of Jesus tells how much we're worth. In fact, God tells us we're worth so much that he gave his only son for us that we might know life with him. See, eternal life isn't just that we get to go to heaven one day. John 17.3 says, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you set. That's eternal life, to know God and to walk with him. I think we need to do a periodic checkup in our lives, and this might be a good time during this self-quarantine where we're trying to be a little bit more careful in our homes it'd be a good time to ask, what am I really living for? Is the primary goal of my life to make more? To get that promotion? To get that raise? To change jobs so that I can make more? Or to buy more? To keep more? To have more? Is the only way I feel good about life is if I can go out and spend money? When you're self-quarantined, what drives you? Is it, well, I'll feel better today if I can actually place an order on Amazon and get it here in two days. Because that'll make me feel better about myself. What do I 
find myself focusing my energy on. And I want to suggest to you, happiness doesn't come from your possessions. It comes from realizing your purpose in life. And your purpose in life is to glorify God in all that you say, in all that you do. I heard about a Beverly Hills widow who was very, very, very well off. And she died suddenly. And so friends gathered for the funeral and then ultimately at the graveside. And two close friends were standing next to each other, both of them elderly ladies. And one looked at the other as they stared at the casket and said, it's so sad. She had so much to live for. And her other friend replied, no, she had so much to live on. She apparently had nothing to live for. My question to you today is, what are you living for? Is it this yearning to possess, to have, this desperate need to have more and better and newer? Or have you learned the secret of contentment? to be able to be satisfied with what God has given you. I want to challenge you this morning to confront the myth that having more, having newer, having bigger will make you happier. Each of us has to make a choice. Is our lifestyle going to be determined by our culture or is it going to be determined by Christ? Is it going to be decided by Madison Avenue or is it going to be decided by the Master? This would be a great time for all of us to actually take an internal audit and then say to God, help me to live for you and for your glory, not for what I can get. To appreciate and be grateful for what I have, but to live for you. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father, I sometimes think it's something that older people seem to get better than the younger people, and maybe it's because we've lived long enough to see all this stuff kind of flash before our eyes, and we look back at the things that we used to think were so desperately important, and now we realize that's not really what life is about. But I know it's not just an issue of age. It's an issue of learning and growing as we age. So Lord, I'm asking that uh, in our own home church here at Family Life Church in Warsaw, and then for those others who are listening in, that you would help us to realize that true contentment only comes when we keep our eyes on Jesus. And that we recognize that all that we have is a gift from Him, and that we are called to steward those gifts, not to own them or to be owned by them. We don't have to have. We're grateful for what we have. And God, if you in your mercy and goodness decide to give us something more, we're grateful for that. But it doesn't own us. We're owned by you. We have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let that be worked into the fabric of our souls, in our thinking. Let us constantly remember. We don't want to be owned by anything else. In fact, Lord Jesus, you said you can't serve God and mammon. And by mammon, we're talking about not just money, because we realize money 
is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's that desperate need to have. And mammon represents the God of materialism, this thing that drives people. You can't serve God and mammon. Lord, we have made the decision to serve you. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we're not going to be owned by anything other than you, Jesus. Let that be the testimony of our souls. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. God richly bless you and we look forward to seeing you next week.